Is that all the time? No, it's not, right? We look at Psalm 23, and we see sort of that journey with the good shepherd, and we know, hey, it starts out, there's some really pleasant scenes there. You're, you know, you're laying, behind, laying beside still waters, and you've got um, the grass, and the shepherd's leading you, but then all of a sudden, right, it takes a turn, and you're in the deepest, darkest valley of death, but the shepherd is there with you. So yes, um, there is freedom and joy in living a holy life, though there will be seasons in that life that are marked by hard things and um, deep, dark trials. But generally, that's the trajectory of the Christian life, right? And today we're tackling the second part of the definition of sanctification. So yesterday we were saying it's a two-part definition. All Christians are holy. We have been made holy. Today what we're tackling is that all Christians are becoming holy. This is often referred to as progressive sanctification. Now how does that holiness that God has produced in us that he has secured in us, how does it work its way out, right? Progressive, when you hear that word progressive sanctification, don't think of it, I think a lot of people think of it as if we're the ones who need to progress our sanctification. And that's not what that means. What it means is that with God's help, so with God's help, we begin to live out our sanctification until we are glorified. So that's what's happening in, in the Christian life while we're still here. With God's help, we are living out our sanctification, our holy status. We're living it out until we have been glorified. And last night we saw from Hebrews 10, 1 through 10, right, that the doctrine of sanctification is a gift from God to us. That we have been decisively and definitely made holy through Jesus' once and for all sacrifice on the cross. So when the New Testament writers use that word, sanctification, they're often holding out Jesus' one-and-done sacrifice. Usually that's what they are talking about, so we want to remember that. In Pilgrim's Progress, um, which is a wonderful book, it was written hundreds of years ago by John Bunyan, it's an allegory of the Christian life. And I just love that image of when the main character named Christian he goes through this whole journey, and he finally, as he's going through this journey, there's a burden on his back. There's like a, in the kid's book, there's like a great picture of like, he's got a, a, like a sack on his back. And as the story goes on, as he's reading the, the law, he, the, the sack or that burden on his back just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's a giant burden that is hindering him from being able to move freely. And what happens? He finally comes to the foot of the cross, and that is when the giant burden falls off and rolls into the tomb. Here's what R.C. Sproul wrote about that part of the story. He says, the pilgrim knew the law. He knew his sin. He realized he had a burden on his back that he could not, with all of his effort, and his great striving, he could not remove it. His redemption must come from outside himself. He needed a righteousness that was not his own. He needed to exchange the weighty sack of sin on his back. 
He needed to exchange that for an alien righteousness at the foot of the cross. Sisters, this describes us. God has given us an alien holiness through Jesus' offering. He's given us an alien holiness through Jesus' offering. When Jesus offered himself up for our redemption, our justification, our salvation, our propitiation, our adoption, our sanctification, in that moment we received a whole catalog of blessings and gifts, including the help of the Holy Spirit. So we received the help, the help of the Holy Spirit so that we can now live out what we are. So that's what we're talking about today, living out what we already are. So in Christ, we've been blessed and gifted with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians says, right? We've been gifted with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that we could live it out now. Jesus' single offering is so good and effective that it changed our very natures. Whereas before, you and I were bound to sin and death, chained up to sin and death. Romans tells us that we are now bound to Christ. We are his slaves, able to walk in newness of life. So remember, this doctrine is meant to be comforting. It's meant to be unburdening. It's meant to be freeing and refreshing to our souls because we cannot earn redemption. But this doctrine should also not be weaponized. Okay, it should not be weaponized as an excuse for living a life that displeases God. So we have to make that very clear. While Jesus secured your holiness, if you are in Christ, this is not a doctrine where we can weaponize it to excuse unholy living. We need to ask ourselves, are we concerned with living holy lives? Are we concerned with living holy lives? Well, turn back with me to Hebrews 10, 11, verses 11 to 14. We're going to finish up this passage. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 11 to 14. And I'm going to read it for us. Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now the writer is, he's pivoting again, and he's now going to compare Jesus' single sacrifice for sins to these priests in the temple. And he says these priests who stand daily, they're repeatedly offering the same sacrifices. And what these priests can't do, we see there in verse 11, is that they can't, these, these sacrifices that they're standing and repeatedly offering cannot take away sins. This is like he's really wanting to drill this home in our minds. It cannot take away sins. But I love how in verse 12, Jesus is depicted as completing his sacrificial work and then sitting down at the right hand of God. It's like the ultimate mic drop moment. 
right? Like, boom, right? Because here's these priests, and they're standing, and they're repeatedly offering sacrifices that can't take away sin year after year. And here comes Jesus. He sacrifices himself once and then sits down, effectively takes away the sins of all the people, and then sits down at the right hand of God. So the priests are standing. He's leaving us with this image of the priest standing and Jesus seated. He's like, Jesus is like, watch me. I'm going to take away the sins of the people and perfect them for good before God. Mic drop, right? He's sitting at the right hand of God because he has finished his work. So verse 14, it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus' single offering has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's the third time the writer uses this particular phrase, once and for all. And it makes it clear that Jesus has sanctified the people that God has given him. I'm trying to hit this home for us because what we were talking about earlier, the, the indicative, that is that truth or that principle that is being talked about. It's the indicative and the imperative. Think of it, I'm sure maybe Aaron's talked about this. It's the what and the why. It's the what and the why. They, they're always linked, right? When we have commands, they're always linked to an eternal, timeless truth. And so when you look at God's word and you are thinking about all the things that we are called to do, always try to look for the indicative, that timeless truth that goes with it. And usually it's always based on what Christ did for us. But in some sense, our sanctification is still not complete. How do we know? How do we know that our sanctification is not complete? Well, because we have a whole bunch of letters from the apostles calling us to live out our holy. They're calling us to live out our holy. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we read this verse, it may seem like, oh, is there something lacking about our sanctification? Because he's asking that God would sanctify them completely. Is it like there's something lacking here? But that's not what Paul means. When you read that whole chapter, which context is very important, so when you're, when you're in a verse and it's telling you what to do, broaden it. Read the whole entire context. Read that whole chapter to get a sense of what exactly is the big picture that God is trying to give us. So if you do that for that first Thessalonians passage, you'll see that the Thessalonians had questions about the end times and about death and resurrection. And Paul is answering those questions. He's talking to them about the second coming of Jesus. And when it comes to the Christian life, we are living in the tension of the now and not yet. That's where we are, right? We are after the cross, but it, the new creation has not come yet. So we live in the tension of the now and the not yet. So it's true of this, this doctrine of sanctification. We are sanctified now, but we are, all, we are also not yet with God. Romans 6.23 says, But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. There it is. And its end which is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So see, see there it is again. You can find the indicative and the imperative, right? So we've been set free from sin. We are now slaves to God. We often just kind of sit there and think about that. But he always links it to what Jesus did. So even though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So these verses are teaching us that sanctification has an end goal. It does have a a completion, a stage where it is complete. And that is what we call glorification. That's when our sanctification process is fully complete. This was God's plan from the beginning. Notice how in that passage for Romans 6, 23, he's talking at first in the past tense. He says, you have been set free from sin. You have become slaves of God. But then all of a sudden, he switches to the the present tense. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So that is the end. So sanctification has an end, and the goal is eternal life, right? That's why God has purified us, has set us apart, so that we could be his people, not just here, but for forever. You have been set free from your sin. So turn with me to Romans 8.28. Turn with me to Romans 8.28. So if the, the end goal of our sanctification, the completion, is glorification when we finally get to be with God forever, What does that sanctification process look like here and now as we're progressing towards glorification? Well, look with me at Romans 8, 28. We're going to be looking at 28 to 30. I'll read it for us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there we see it again. Notice verse 29. It was God's plan to elect some to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, his son. And those who he has elected, or the text says predestined, he calls them. And as he calls them, he justifies them. And eventually, he glorifies them on that final day. The reward of sanctification, which was purchased for us in Christ, the reward for for holiness is we get to share in Jesus's eternal inheritance. That's 1 Peter 1.4. But while we wait and hope for our future glory, we are being conformed to the image of the Son. That's what's happening. That's how we are living out what we are. We're being conformed to the image of the Son. We are growing day by day, being changed degree by degree, more and more into the image of the Son. This is the fruit of sanctification here and now. 1 John 3.2 promises that when Jesus appears on that final day, we will be like him. 
and we will see him as he is. So how does God conform us to the image of his son here and now? Well, turn with me to 1 Peter 1. I told you we're going to be all over the, the scriptures today. 1 Peter 1, chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, chapter 1. We're looking at verses 1 to 3. And it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So again, you, you're starting to see all these connections. This is happening according to the plan of God before all time to predestine some for sanctification so that they might be his people. And notice what Peter says there. According to the, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. For obedience to Jesus Christ. So how does this relate to Hebrews 10, what we've been talking about? Well, it's just a reminder again. Relationship with God precedes obedience. Relationship with God precedes obedience. And Peter wants to make this point super clear for the believers, that while they are still on earth, they are called to obey God just like Jesus did. Because if we have a relationship with Jesus, if we are tied to him by faith, then we now share in his holiness. We share in his holiness. And that means we will be devoted to God and his purposes. We no longer live for ourselves. That's what we did before, right? Just like Adam and Eve, we were completely devoted to ourselves and other things. But now, with our new nature, as God's saints, his holy ones, and sharing in the holiness of Christ, we are now those who are devoted to God and his purposes. So progressive sanctification is just living out what we already are living out what we already are, becoming more and more like Jesus until that day when we will be like him fully and see him as he is. If we are united to Christ by faith, David Peterson, a theologian, says this, we will strive and pursue godliness and transformation. We're not trying to achieve it by our own endeavors, but we will strive to use the benefits and blessings that we have in Christ for the glory of God. Our obedience is the fruit of genuine sanctification. Root and fruit, right? We were talking about that earlier, root and fruit. You can't have fruit unless you have the roots. Christ's finished work on the cross are, is our roots. And if Jesus has made you holy, then you will bear fruits of the Spirit. True holiness will love and live for God's purposes. True holiness will love and live for God's purposes. If you've been sanctified, then you will reorient your values, your behavior, your whole life around the things that God loves. And through us, as we do that, as we reorient our lives, everything about it, towards God, as we do that, God's holiness is revealed to the world. 
Okay, that's very important for us to understand. God's holiness is then revealed to the whole world. But our holy living here and now is, even that is just a gracious gift from God, right? Because it's enabled by the Holy Spirit, who didn't come from us, but also was one of the blessings that God gave us at salvation. The Bible's very clear on this. Ephesians 1 tells us that the very power that resurrected Jesus, okay, so the very power that resurrected Jesus is at work in us now. How comforting is that? How freeing is that? The very power that resurrected Jesus is at work in you now, and it is going to be at work in you on that final day when you are resurrected too. 1 Peter 2, 24, I, this was on the wheeler's wall in the guest room. It just kind of knocked me off my feet. It says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So there we go, Hebrews 10, right? He, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You have been healed. So by whose stripes have we been healed? We've been healed by Jesus' stripes. Paul often talked about how hard he worked. Paul would use that language like, I'm running the race. I'm striving. I'm, I'm working hard. I worked harder than you know other people did. But you know what he always does is he always links his effort with God's strength. So he says he strives, but he always says he strives with the strength that God supplies. Those two always go together. He's always pointing back to God, even in the effort that he puts into living, in the, the, living the Christian life. He says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that's the imperative. It's what he's asking them to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you see how the two are always tied together. Yes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I remember that part so well, right? I forget the other part, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when you're struggling to obey God's command, sisters, which we will, when you're struggling to orient your life around him, ask God for help. Life gives us constant opportunities to rely on the Lord's strength, to call upon him, and that is a good thing. I often resent those moments that I need to rely on the Lord, um, but I have found as life goes on, those, those are the moments of grace when he gives us opportunities to call upon him. It's a good thing. Sometimes we want to trust God so that he can get us to a place where we don't have to trust him, right? Sometimes we pray, help me trust you, but the, the hope is is so different from what his hope is for us. We often want to trust him so that he can get us to a place where we don't have to trust him. But God is glorified as we rely on him, sisters. So let people in on the process, too. Show your work. We don't want to show up on Sundays or to Bible studies as if we are people who don't need God's help. We do not want to build a culture where we are 
putting out that we don't need God's help. We do. We need God's help. We need other people to be part of the process. One of my favorite song lyrics is from the song, All I Have is Christ. And it says this, Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. So when you are struggling, struggling in living out your holy, text other sisters to pray for you. Text other sisters to speak truth to you. Ask them to help you fight for holiness when it feels really hard. Another reason why we can grow in holiness and be more like Jesus is because he has freed us from the power of sin today. So sin used to have a hold on us. If you're a believer, sin used to have a hold on you. But because of Jesus, you are now free from the law of sin and death, Romans 8, 2. He himself bore his sins on his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and now live to righteousness. So we need to be those, as the people of God, we need to be allergic to taking advantage of God's gracious work in our lives. We need to have an allergy to it. To, like to, we don't want to abuse his grace or take it for granted. J.C. Ryle said this, that Jesus is a complete savior. He's a whole savior. Not only has he dealt with your sins and taken them away, but he has also freed you from sin's grip. So he has freed you from sin's grip. So what that means is now we are able to kill sin. We are able to live to please God. We can continue repenting and trusting in what Jesus has done, taking God's side against our sin. We can do those things because Jesus is a complete savior. So even this is credited to God. Though it happens in and through us, we are not alone in the fight against sin. Our Lord helps us. Well, holiness also has corporate implications. It has a group reality. Okay? It's not only about our individual holiness, though I think that's often where we're very concerned. But holiness has a group reality. And this is according to the plan of God, right? I know many of you are studying Exodus and so if you remember in Exodus 19, it talks about God wanting to gather a people to be his treasured possession. That's the goal. That's what he has been working towards. And you see that fulfillment when you get to Titus, and he talks about he has made for himself a people for his own possession. Jesus has done that and accomplished it, right? So holiness has a group reality. Many of us think it's an individualized plan, like holiness is about having an individualized plan where we're picking from a buffet of things that are going to help us excel at holiness. I did this for a season. I remember there's a season of life where, oh, I really liked this church, their music. So I went and like would go to their service just for the music, and then I would leave right when the music was done. And then I go to another church where I could serve because there was a need there, and so I could serve and, and do things in that church. And then I would go to another church because I liked their Bible study, and so I did Bible study with a different church. I did not realize until later in my Christian life that holiness is actually a group project, that we are called to become holy together. And if you want to read a 
wonderful meditation. Read Aaron's book on the church. That is what it is all about. It is becoming holy together. So just as Jesus was set apart by God and sent to reach sinners, we are on the same mission. So he's made us his holy ones. We've been set apart by God. But for what? Well, Matthew 28 tells us to make disciples of all nations. That's one of the missions that God has sent us on and made us holy for. We aren't saved in order to hoard spiritual blessings to ourselves. We have actually been deployed by God. Wherever you are, that is where he has sent you. You've been deployed not to be comfortable and cozy, not to make this place your home, but so that the world might believe that Jesus was sent by the Father to live in such a way that when we tell the truth about God, they believe it because they see our lives. So sisters, I encourage you, have a, build a culture of evangelism among one another. I was so encouraged yesterday hearing about some of the work some of the ladies are doing among international students here in Fayetteville. That is at the heart of, that is the heart of Christ working its way out. Let's desire to see more of that. Evangelism is one way we can actually exercise our faith. So I often tell women, faith is like a muscle. It has to be exercised in order for us to be conformed to Christ. Is it uncomfortable? Absolutely. But isn't that how we were saved, right? By someone doing the uncomfortable and exercising their faith? That's how we came to faith, right? They had to do the uncomfortable, have awkward conversations, talk about sin, Talk about a need for a savior in order for us, and then how Jesus is that savior, in order for us to be God's holy ones, right? Someone had to do that for us. So encourage each other to share the gospel and adorn it with your lives. Make it beautiful with your lives. That's what we're doing. First Peter 2.12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So one of the sweetest examples that I have heard of, um, because we lived in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, and the whole reason why there are Christians in the United Arab Emirates to this day who can experience freedom to practice their faith is because in the 60s, the maternal death rate for the Emiratis was 50%. So if you were a woman and you were giving birth, you had, you know, it was a 50% chance you were gonna die. And if it wasn't that, it was a 50% chance your child would die during childbirth. So they as a people group were dying. And so the, the sheikh, the ruler, issued a call for anyone from other countries to come and help them figure out this crisis that they were having. Well, there was a couple, they were the, the Kennedys, and they were both trained doctors, so what they decided to do was to move their lives over to the UAE to help this people and to be a light for the gospel and to share about Jesus. So they moved there in the 60s, and it is not what it is today. When you look at pictures of Dubai and the UAE, it was nothing like that. It was all desert. It was, a, it was Bedouin tribes, no stable electricity, very little infrastructure, and they went. They went and they started a clinic and they started to treat these women and help them raise their babies and the population exploded. It exploded. And the sheikh, 
who ended up becoming, he was born from the hospital, like the clinic eventually became a hospital, and the, the future sheikh was born at that hospital. He said this, he said, the Christians came before there was money from oil. The Christians came before there was money from oil. They came out of love. And so he issued an edict. It is so amazing. He issued an edict protecting the freedom of Christians in the country. And that's why people like my husband and I got to be there and be able to be Christian publicly. Isn't that amazing? When we live and conduct ourselves among the Gentiles in an honorable way, even though they will not agree with us about what we believe, they should see our good deeds and glorify God on that final day. Well, corporate holiness is also concerned with the church. Hebrews 2.11 says that he who sanctifies, meaning Jesus, and those who are sanctified have the same source. We have the same source. And what he means by that is we all share in God's holiness now as his gathered people. As the holy body of Christ, we share in God's holiness and we have the mind of Christ. Jesus' mind was one of humility. He came, he humbled himself, he came for the good of others. So, if we're being made more like Jesus, if we're, as we're being sanctified to glory, we will mature, right? Christian maturity is concerned about the holiness of other believers. I'll say that again. Christian maturity is concerned about the holiness of other believers. Not in like a micromanaging kind of way, but in a nurturing and patient and loving way. If you're maturing in the faith, then you will be lovingly concerned about how others are doing spiritually. And I, again, I, I want to stress, you're going to be lovingly concerned about how they're doing. That's why discipleship is a really big deal for Christians. We get to participate with the Holy Spirit in doing spiritual good in each other's lives. So in discipling relationships, we help one another repent. We help one another fight temptation, fight sin, fight discouragement, bitterness, jealousy, comparison, doubt. And we get to help each other fight for joy, contentment, faith, hope in Christ, so ladies, create an environment in your churches, create an atmosphere of grace where, where women are excited to come alongside the weakest and most vulnerable in order for them to grow and learn. Create an atmosphere of grace. <clears throat> I remember when I moved to DC um, and I went to the church that Aaron and I both were at, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and, and I had very, very little solid biblical foundation. Um, but I went to visit the church, and it was big, and I felt so lost. I, would just, I was like, last one in the door, first one out the door. That's just, that was who I was. Wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. And these two older women who were single saw me, and they came and found me. And they every Sunday, they would come find me and they would ask me to lunch. And I thought, oh, but I, like, I don't feel like we have a lot in common. <laughs> but I, every week they would come and they'd find me and they'd take me to lunch and I would go and, 
and they would just encourage me and help me get plugged into the church. And I didn't know this, but they were even getting ready to move on because they were moving. They, they were roommates, and they were moving to another part of the city, and they were eventually going to be transferring to another church. But they spent those that last year trying to help me with my very lost look on my face get settled into the church. I thank God for them to this day because I don't know where I would be had they not done that uncomfortable work of identifying me and seeking to do spiritual good in my life. So if you're not meeting up with someone, pray and ask God. Just start with asking God, who do you want me to meet with? Oftentimes we just don't do anything because we're not even praying about it. So pray and ask the Lord to put someone on your heart to help you identify who it is and how you can start meeting with them. And you'll notice as you pray, God will give you clarity about who to invest in and who can invest in you because it goes both ways, sisters. It goes both ways. It's not only who you can invest in, but it's also who do you want to invest in you. And just a quick note, becoming more holy means conforming to the sun, not uniformity to each other, okay? And what I mean is that corporate holiness, all of us growing in holiness, isn't about us becoming clones. So ask yourself, are you pointing people more to yourself and your choices, or are you pointing them to Christ, his wisdom, and his word first? It's not wrong to, to talk about the choices that you've made or how God got you there. That is not wrong at all. But are you pointing people more to yourself than you are to Christ? Or are you pointing people to Christ more than to yourself? Well, finally, remember that God's holiness is beautiful and it's attractive. God's holiness in the Bible is always linked to beauty. And Jesus' holiness attracted people to himself. It often attracted the weary, the sinful, the downcast, the rejected, the hopeless. But who did it not attract? It did not attract the legalistic, the hypocritical, the proud, the Pharisees, right? It did not, his holiness did not attract them. The people of his day were not scared of his holiness. In fact, they were drawn to Jesus, right? So if we share in God's holiness, if we share in Christ's holiness, we too are being made more beautiful. But it's not beauty in the world's sense. It is beauty in the truest sense. I know as women, we think a lot about beauty, don't we? But holiness guarantees that we are made beautiful like God, not like this world. In his first letter, Peter encourages and exhorts wives who were married to unbelieving men He's trying to encourage them in, in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. And he calls these women to conduct themselves, he says, with purity and with respect in their marriages. Because the hope is that they would win their non-Christian husbands to Christ by how they lived. He says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Isn't that wonderful? That ties in for us the, the nature of sanctification 
that we are made holy, but also we are being made beautiful in distinct ways as women of Christ, right? Women who belong to God. So we're not being beautified externally, but we are being beautified in character and personhood as we hope in God. And this kind of beauty will never fade like physical beauty will. This kind of beauty will continue to be palpable to the people you are around. And it is precious to God, sisters. It is, that beauty is precious to God. So, sisters, who is attracted to your lived-out holiness? Are people drawn to you because you've been sanctified by God? We've seen that the doctrine of sanctification is a gift from God to us. How all Christians have been definitively and decisively made holy by God's will through Jesus' offering once and for all. We saw that. The sanctification, our sanctification was planned by the Father, paid for by the Son, and applied to us through the Holy Spirit. But the Bible also teaches that all Christians are becoming holy. Progressive sanctification doesn't mean we're the ones who progress our sanctification, but that with the Spirit's help, we are living out what we already are. With the Spirit's help, we are living out what we already are until we reach eternal life. That's the goal. We have been set apart from the world, gathered together. So we've been set apart from the world and then gathered together by God and set in devotion to him as a holy people, distinct, beloved, striving by the Holy Spirit's help to be conformed to Christ and not the pattern of this world. Finally, here is a description of God's holy people that I want to leave you with. If you know Jesus and have trusted him for salvation, then this is what you are. But if you have not put your faith in Christ, if you've not turned away from a life dedicated to devotion to yourself and unholiness, I call you to repent and put your trust in him so that you, this would be true of you, that if you repent and believe, this would be true of you. It's from 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you because we were those who were once far off. Every single one of us, Lord. We were once those who were far off, and your mercy has drawn us near. We thank you that not only has your mercy drawn us near, it has purified us, it has consecrated us, it has made us holy. And even now, as we wait for you to come back or for us to go home, you are enabling us through your spirit to live out our holy. You are helping us live out what we are. So, Lord, we pray that we would be women like the, the holy women of the past who adorned themselves um, in character, in holiness. Lord, we pray we would be like those women. God, that you would help us to be those women so that we could be a distinct people 
who prove the truth of what you have said, that Jesus has been sent by the Father. We pray that for UBC and for all the women from churches and surrounding areas, God, make them, continue to make them a distinct light for the people here to see who Jesus is. Make them attractive for the sake of your glory and your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.